Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. Today, we are very honored to have with us Rabbi Abishad David. Rabbi David is a noted educator, scholar, and rabbinical leader, having led Jewish communities and institutions both in Israel and across North America. Currently, Rabbi David serves as Rosh Yeshiva at Yeshiva Torah Shraga in Yerushalayim, Jerusalem. Rabbi David is also the Rabbi Mora Atra of Kehillat Beis Tepila Yona Avraham in Ramat Beit Shemesh. Rabbi David is uniquely positioned to transmit and disseminate the full corpus of the Mesorah, the Jewish tradition, having studied under and with leading Torah personalities of this his generations. And today we are privileged to hear about Rabbi David's firsthand encounters with some of those outstanding Torah teachers. Thank you very much, Rabbi David, uh, for your time today. We appreciate it very much. Thank you. Rabbi Yosef Dov Halevi Soloveitchik's annual Tshuva lectures were renowned for their deep scholarship and insights. David, your recollection of one of those Tshuva drushas, Hagon, Rav Moshe Schneider, and the Tshuva drusha of the Rav. On a number of occasions, I had the great merit, the great schus, of driving Hagon of Moshe Schneider Zatzal to the drusha, the Tshuva drusha, the annual Tshuva drusha, Ben Kessel Osar, in the Aseris Tshuva of the Rav Zatzal, the Rav Salavishik. Rav Schneider was connected to the father of the Rosh Shiva Demir, Hagon of Chaim Shulevitz, whose yard site happens to be today. Hagon of Altus Shulevitz, in the city of Stutzin in Europe. The esteemed Gom that I accompanied enjoyed the Shir immensely, and at the end went to give Rasalavechik a hearty Yashikach to thank him for the wonderful Shir that he enjoyed. Subsequently, the shia that was held in Lamport Auditorium of Yeshiva University, as we exited the door, a young man who heard the shia clearly was speaking to his friend and commented to his friend using the following language. Did you hear what J.B. said? Rav Schneider's ears perked up and he said in Yiddish to the young man, what did you say? The young man, clearly annoyed by this eavesdropper, repeated it and told him, basically, do that which you should do, and I'll do that which I have to do. Basically, mind your own business. Rav Schneider, who was a short octogenarian in rabbinic frock, responded forthwith with a ferocity that I was astounded at. What right do you have to speak with derision using this Rashi Tevos, JB, about the greatest Tamachacham of this generation, one of the Dali Adar, and especially during this period of time of Aser Simechuva, you must immediately accompany me and beg forgiveness from the Rav. The fellow obviously had no intention of doing so, but there was such a din and commotion, and before you know it, Rav Schneider was a very short diminutive kind of fellow, grabbed this tall, imposing young man and began to schlep him to the front of the auditorium. When we reached the Rav with a crowd in tow, Rav Schneider told the Rav, this fellow has something to say to him which is urgent. ASAP. Rav Salavitchik said to Rav Schneider, there's no need, there's no necessity for any discussion. Rav Schneider said, no. He said something that was not appropriate. The Rav said, I'm not interested in hearing what he said. He's forgiven completely. And then the Rav heaps upon this individual an avalanche of brachos, which is rather uncharacteristic of his brisk kind of personality. I was absolutely stupefied by this overwhelmingly enthusiastic response. But at the same time, I was not completely shocked. Over the years, I heard people, unfortunately, keep calumny, and even somewhat vilify the personality of Rav Soloveitchik, who was a complicated individual. And invariably, during the Yom Tovim period, he would comment, how many people would call him 
to ask him for his pardon, for his forgiveness. He responded immediately, affirmatively, without batting an eyelash and without any inquiry as to what they said. He so much transcended all the pettiness of the world at large because he was in reality, I could describe him as the way the Torah mentions in the Chalom of Yaakov Avinu, Sula Mutzav Arza, a ladder anchored on earth, but whose head and heart reached the heavens, and he was a figure larger than life. Beautiful story. Beautiful. Um, the Rav delivered ongoing shirin classes to laymen at the Moriah Synagogue in New York. What memory sticks out uh, from the shirin, the classes in Moriah, which is called the miracle of a Shoah survivor? The story I'm about to tell you is really, I believe, remarkable at a number of levels. It's heartwarming. It accentuates the fire, the warmth of the Rav, underneath that brisk intellectual acuity, seemingly dry and desiccated nature. In the course of my attending Shurim in the Mariah Synagogue in Manhattan for probably close to a period more than a decade, I was sitting next to a European gentleman of Polish origin. He was a devoted attendee of the Shear. He came regularly, but the Shear was a Blat Gemara Shear. And there were about 500 attendees, all with Gemaras. He was the only one without a Gemara. He wore a very small kippah and had a huge clump of whitish hair on both corners of his head. I was always puzzled by his presence at the Shear but I noticed his unbelievable focus and concentration. When I told him, after many years, I was moving to a different venue outside New York City, he invited me for, after this year, for a cup of tea, a cup of coffee, tea, in a bistro on the Lower West Side of Manhattan, so I should hear his life story. His life story that he shared with me was both tragic, but at the same time, enthralling. He studied as a young man in the Polish Cheder. And when the Nazi scourge came, he was miraculously able to escape Europe. But unfortunately, his entire family, wife and children, were killed by the Nazis. He decided as a result of that tragedy that clearly God is dead. And he abandoned all his ties to his Orthodox Jewish heritage. However, he described himself to me, and I saw that in the course of the years that I sat next to him. He had an absolutely impeccably beautiful, eloquent Yiddish. That to me was so singular about his personality. And he described himself as a maskil, an enlightened kind of person, who had absorbed the love of the Yiddish language and its allied literature. In the course of his meanderings in New York after the war, when he was able to come to the United States, he heard there was a lecture given in New York by someone that was called the Nightingale. Nightingale is a translation of Soloveitchik. He then proceeded, okay, let me go and hear this lecture of the Nightingale. And he proceeded to attend, realized there was a black Marashir, which he had no interest in whatsoever, but was immediately captivated by the mellifluity of the speaker in Yiddish, who turned out to be none other then the Rav, Arav Soloveitchik Zatzal. He fell in love with the eloquence of the Rav, with his impassioned presentation. After a while, he approached the Rav. He shared with him his tragic personal odyssey. And from that juncture, from that time on, the Rav spent enormous amounts of time with him, befriending him, strengthening him, until he completely returned to his Orthodox Jewish upbringing and became a devout Torah Jew. When I asked him, what was the spark that brought him back to Yiddishkeit, to Judaism. And he answered with tears, their clang from Rabbi Shabbat's Yiddish, the dulcet and melodious tones of Rav Soloveitchik's Yiddish. I continue, Adayomazet, to marvel at the array of spiritual armaments and weaponry that the Rav harnessed to galvanize and excite the heartstrings of masses of Jews. Many years ago, in a short essay penned in Jewish Life magazine, that was the forerunner of Jewish Action magazine of the OU. So Absolution described and defined the Yiddish language as Tashmishe Kedusha, an accessory of sanctity that the Gemara has in Masechus Megillah. 
when I heard this Polish Jew share his life story, I saw that even the medium of the Shia, namely the Yiddish language and the warmth of expression became a powerful dynamic instrument in the hands of this maestro, namely the Rav Zechatzal Debrach. The Rav Rosavechik interacted with numerous Torah leaders. What was the special relationship that Rav Soloveitchik had with Hagon Rav Chaim Hela? Hagon Rav Chaim Hela was an astounding individual who came to the shores of America really without Parnassa. He was someone who was acclaimed in Europe as one of the Doli Ador. But besides his knowledge, he had tremendous prowess and almost a kind of academic prowess in other areas as well. He was fluent in a number of languages, and he had expertise in all kinds of ancillary areas that were not necessarily classic. In the early 50s, the then Prime Minister of the State of Israel, David Ben-Gurion, sent out a letter, famous letter to a host of Chachmi Yisrael. They were the Jewish intelligentsia that included at that time the intellectual elite of the Jewish world. All types of individuals were included and were sent this letter. Rabbonim, rabbis, philosophers, thinkers, savants, a poetry of other notables. And the issue was, which is still the same contentious issue, nothing has really changed in the course of literally almost a century. Who is a Jew? How do we define what a Jew is? The opinions and perspectives of the aforementioned personalities were sought out, and among the outstanding names that were queried were two Gaonim, Hagon Rav Chaim Hela and Hagon Rav Yosedov Halevi Salavechik. So Rav Hela and Rav Chaim Hela asked the Rav, he was very close to Rav Salavechik, he asked him, could you pen the letter and I'll sign it. You write the letter, you draft it, and I'll be glad to sign it. A Talmud of both the Rav and Rav Chaim Hela was asked to coordinate between two Gedali Yisrael, and that Talmud owned the jalopy and had the ability to go back and forth between these two Gedolah Yisrael. So I heard from that wonderful individual, David Katz, his name is. I heard the following blow-by-blow account of what transpired in terms of this letter. Rav Salvechi composed the letter. He brought it to Rav Hella. He proceeded to sign it. It was then returned to the Rav for Rav Salvechi for his signature. But then the Rav told the above messenger, I can't sign it because I can't put my signature above that of the Golador, above that of Hagoyim Abchayim Hela. Abchayim Hela, what he did was, he signed his name in a corner of the document because he held, he could not sign his name above the signature of the Golador, of Rav Salavajin. So David Katz, his Balabas was caught betwixt and between. He told me he was caught between Sil and Charybdis, a rock and a hard place, between two towering luminaries, he was besides himself. What am I going to do? He traveled back and forth a number of times between the Rav and Abchayim Hela. And um, finally, through some miraculous kind of event, as he described it, a resolution emerged. Rav Salavechi discovered a tiny space below the signature of Abchayim Hela. And he affixed his signature below that of Abchayim Hela. David Kasten told me how relieved the rub was when he uncovered this tiny window of space. When I heard this vignette, I was just taken aback by the anova, the modesty, the remarkable covenant Torah that Rav Salavechi had for someone who we considered to be his revered Rebbe and mentor. I also heard from this emissary that the rub quietly and almost unobtrusively without any fanfare, provided substantial financial support for Abhela for many years, actually for the rest of his life in America. Often we have in our mind's eye a picture and portrait of Gdali Yisrael, primarily probably or preeminently because of their intellectual mean. But we're unaware of their pristine, refined character traits, the unbelievable modesty, the yam and chesed that they exemplify with all the other sterling traits. The rub hid most of that from the teeming crowds that attended his shiurin, but in reality, the Rav was suffused with chesed, literally an entire brisk personality, and one only saw the sharpness of brisk, but unfortunately, most of us did not see 
the overwhelming chesed that was always practiced by the Rav throughout his entire lifetime on an ongoing basis. In, in a similar vein, Agon Harav Aaron Halevi Sohalechev, who headed Yeshiva's Brisk in Chicago, obviously a Rav Sohalechev, the Rav's brother, the non-intellectual side of Harav Agon Aaron Halevi Sohalechev and his sensitivity and tenderness to a young teenage student. This story is a bit embarrassing for me, but I tell it because of the beauty that's embedded in it. When I was a young man, I was uh, an avid sports aficionado and an avid sportsman as well. I can no longer attest or in any way demonstrate that kind of prowess. And I would play basketball late at night after school and homework. I would often go to my yeshiva high school early to Dabin and then uh, play basketball before my shura and before my classes began. One early morning at the age of 13, I traveled to the yeshiva. I attended, arrived if the dawn had broken, and the building was empty and desolate. And being of New York origin and therefore trusting no one, that's the nature of a New Yorker in some respects, I began to look for a place or a person where I could park my svarim and school texts and be assured of their safety. I researched the area, literally I combed the area. I searched the entire building. And finally on the second floor in a library, I noticed a Torah scholar with a fiery red beard learning a black gemar. I didn't have a clue who he was. I was all 13, but I was gratified. Here I found a, seemed to be a fine human being I could ask him to watch my books, my svarim, and the like. When I approached him with this request, he responded in English with a European accent. He asked me, what is my status? Am I a Shemachinom? Am I a Shemesochar? Am I a Shoyel? The different Baileys that the Torah describes in Pashat Mishpatim, I was dumbfounded by the question at two levels. First, I simply asked him to watch my briefcase. And he responded with some sort of Talmudic rejoinder. Secondly, I had no idea of what he was talking about in terms of the Talmudic background. He looks at me, sees my quandary, and in Yiddish he says to me, please sit down, and I'll explain to you all these concepts. I was extremely exasperated, extremely annoyed. Here I am, a 13-year-old. I needed somewhere secure to park my books. And now I see my plans of the day are being snuffed out by this very regal-looking sage explaining to me some Talmudic pilpul. He then proceeded to learn with me the laws of the varying and diverse Shomrim of Pashat Mishpatim. Along the way, he discussed different positions of Dolly Avishonim in a number of Gemaras. It was a rather protracted discussion. When it was over, it says... It looks to me like I'll be a shaymechinom. Namely, you don't plan on compensating me. I had no intention whatsoever at that point in time of compensating him. And therefore, I have minimalistic responsibility. My only liability is Shia, negligence. Essentially, all my plans for the day were foiled and negated by this extended peroration on the part of this sage. But I was happy that I found the shomer to take care of my things. In the course of the day, I noticed that this esteemed Rav, in one hand, is carrying Gemara's and others for him, and the other hand, my briefcase. Everywhere he went, I was amazed at his indefatigable commitment. As a young, rather naive person, I was so taken by his genuineness that I asked him from time to time if I could simply take whatever safer or book I needed, and he'll continue to keep them in a safe place, or continue to carry them wherever he went, he agreed with total equanimity and simcha. And this procedure went on for a number of days. In the middle of the week, when I was taking one of my books from him, there was another venerable rov who observed the proceedings and saw what was happening, the exchange that took place between myself and Hagar Navarro Alevi Salavich, and I didn't know who he was either, but he approached me, and asked me if he could speak with me in a corner. 
he takes me to a corner and asks me, Vos tutir, what are you doing? I explained to him that this first Rav had agreed to be my shomer, and he carries out his responsibility in the fullest, the most meticulous fashion that I've ever seen. The second Rav, who was angelic-looking, and with Zokon Lovon Yorah Abidosov, a rather beautiful white beard, upon hearing this, I think he had apoplexy. I think the white pallor he exhibited was greater than his natural white appearance. He then asked me, do you know who that first rub is, whom you asked to be your shomer? I said, no. He said, that is none other than one of the Gdolei Ador. Hagon, Rabarin Halevi, Salavetzizatzal. And one of the Gdolei Rashi Yeshiva, Bartons. I was shocked and speechless. He said to me, you can't use someone of that stature to be your shomer. That's inappropriate. That's even not permissible. It's a violation of Kavanah Torah. When I queried others, who was the person I encountered who edified me regarding my errant behavior, I discovered it was none other than also one of the Gdoli Ador, Hagon Zatzal, one of the Gdoli Rashi Yeshiva, a rub in Suvalk in Europe, and certainly heralded as one of the outstanding Gdoli Ador. Of course, I immediately took back my briefcase from Hagon Abar Halevi Salavetchik Zatzal. I apologized to him without telling him what precipitated this action. The next day he sees me and he says to me, why didn't you give me a briefcase today? I can assure you, I carried out my responsibilities as a shemachinam. I was not guilty of any kind of pshia. I was not negligent. He cited to me a Rambam in Lechus where the Rambam says the only time in Mishnah Torah the Rambam uses this expression, Shari Yaakov Atzadik, the Rambam says, Yaakov Atzadik, he was careful guarding the sheep of Laban. He said, In the frost, in the heat, irrespective of the weather conditions, whether the nature of the weather was, I took care of it. I was astounded, flabbergasted by this Torah giant who saw no difficulty regarding my briefcase. I was overwhelmed by the fact that the only reason my taking back the briefcase was perhaps a negligence on his part in halachic tort law, a breach of his responsibility he had accepted. This introduction at the age of 13, left a searing, lifelong impression on my innocent, youthful persona. Immediately I became enamored of this giant. From then on, I attended his weekly Hashkafa Shiurim and was totally mesmerized by his genius, but above all, by his warmth, by his accessibility. I was astounded how a Golub Torah of this stature would treat a very young Bamitzah with such respect and friendship as if he was talking to one of his peers. Again, an unbelievable insight into Golub Yisrael and the outpouring of Chesed towards everyone, irrespective of age, irrespective of stature, every human being, the Ahafta, the Reach HaKamoch. One of Rabbi David's teachers was Agon HaRav Nissen Alpert, a leading disciple of Rav Moshe Feinstein and son-in-law of Rav Fein Pinchas Scheinberg. A little bit, please, about Rav uh, Alpert's love and reverence for his Rebbe Muhak. Avisim Alpert was probably the closest Rebbe that I had for a period of almost 20 years. When I think of him, I literally think of someone who was accessible 24 7, with the exception of Shabbos and Yom Tov. I called him on an ongoing basis, all hours of the day, all hours of the night, when I was able to get a hold of him. I went to many of his shiurim for a period of many years, but what I absolutely was thunderstruck about was his connection and relationship with his Rebbe, the Gorl Ador, A number of times he took us to visit his Rebbe, Ramosha Feinstein, and we witnessed firsthand Literally, we saw how this 
Adam Gadol himself, a Talmud of the Gadol Adar, was Mishamish his Rebbe, ministered to his Rebbe. The moment his Rebbe needed a Sefer, he ran to get it. He wouldn't let us do it. I saw a number of times that it was clear that at MTJ, the yeshiva where Rabbi Shafansi was Rosh Hashiva, there was a need for a bulb to be changed right away. And this announcement up on the ladder, changing the bulbs right in front of his Rebbe, Rabbi Feinstein. I saw the unbelievable love that existed between the Rebbe and the Talmud that resonated and reverberated in both of their personalities. I was told the following story that on one occasion, Abaron Kotler, Zatzal, called the yeshiva and uh, Ramnissim Alpin answered the phone that was right outside the Mishmedish. And Ramnissim Alpin was asked by the person who called, that was Abaron Kotler, he wanted to speak to the yeshiva to Ramesha Feinstein, but Ramesha was not in the Mishmedish at that time. So Aaron Cutler then asked, who am I speaking with? So he said, Nisa Malbrin. Oh, Aaron Cutler said, then I can speak to you as well. You're the Talmud Mubla, Ramesha Feinstein. You know exactly what he would have to say on this particular topic. And as far as I'm concerned, you are literally, God Rebbe as the Gemara says, Ke'ilu, the alter ego of Agrein Ramesha Feinstein. Rabbi Nisim Alpert, when he spoke about his Rebbe, he never called him Rabbi Misha. So once I decided I'm going to ask him, Rebbe, we all call Rabbi Misha Feinstein Rabbi Misha in a very endearing kind of way, and that's how we refer to him. But you never call Rabbi Misha Feinstein, never use that kind of terminology. And right away, he began to shake Rabbi Nisim Alpert. He only called him Rosh Hashiva. And he told me, Mora Rabba Kemora Shamayim, this Rosh Hashiva is larger than life, and there's no way I could possibly call him in such endearing terms. Literally, the Pachad, the Yiras HaKovin that he had for Amesha Feinstein was awesome. But at the same time, one saw the unbelievable love. Mayim Rabim Lo Yuchlu The love that a Talmud has for his Rebbe that was clearly reciprocated. When I saw them together, it was just absolutely uncanny to see literally a father and son, that was the relationship between the Gon Ramosha Feinstein and his Talmud, the beloved Gon, Rav Nisam Alpert, Zeche Tzadikim Levach. When we talk about G'day Yisrael, Rabbi David, the normalcy of G'day Yisrael, and how does that apply in a warm conversation that I had with my Rebbe, Hagon Danisan Alpert, I once asked him about the weekly shear. Ramosha Feinstein essentially gave one major shear on Fridays, and that was a rather extended and extensive kind of shear. And those are the shurim that are published in uh, Sefer that's not as well known as the Igris Moshe, called the Dibros Moshe. And so I asked him about that shear, and he told me the following, which was so characteristic of this Talmud and his Rebbe, the Gadol Hador. And this Malbah told me he used to learn Bechabrusa with Agoyin Dabdavim Feinstein, Zechatzag Debracha, the oldest son of Amosha Feinstein. He was to learn with him all Thursday and the entire Thursday night in order to prepare for that Friday morning shear. The Rosh Hashiva. They spent umpteen hours weekly preparing for that shear. After the shear, he told me, they would eat lunch, they would play handball or stickball or go swimming, and then they would enter into Shabbos Kodesh. They would daven, they would eat the Suda of Shabbos, and then he told me they would collapse into a deep sleep, understandably, after that extended period of time. I was astounded by this schedule, especially the sporting elements. When I asked Hagoyin Abdavid Feinstein Zatzal, I used to visit him once a year and ask him all kinds of questions on the Igris Moshe. So once I asked him about this kind of weekly schedule that he had with Hagoyin Abdavid Feinstein, he began to cry, Abdavid Feinstein, over the untimely loss of his Chavusur Abdavid He told me every detail that I told him was genuine truth. La mito shel and there's such a refreshing normalcy about Dolly Yisrael, who also have a need to relax, also have a need to unwind. Of course, their primary thrust 
is through the venue of Lima Torah. But they're fully out Quran with the darker shalolam, sometimes even tasting a bit, of course, in a healthy, balanced kind of way. That's what I saw in this kind of yachas that Vanisa Malpet had with his harusa, the going, Rabdavid Feinstein, Zechatag Libracha. And it's really amazing that Anisim Alpert, who was a titanic model, in my mind, of a Torah giant with his European accent, intellectual genius, and able to come to grips with young Americans like myself, Bachrim from a totally different culture, totally different ambience, totally different value system and environment, and somehow imbue us with Yesodos and Kolat Kula, trans literally transform and elevate us to a world of Ruchnius while standing on terra firma. And this to me, this kind of normalcy left literally is emblazoned in our hearts and minds, undoubtedly, for all posterity. Another outstanding teacher of Rav David was Rav Yerucham Gorelik, who learned in the great European yeshiva of Lamza, Radin, and Brisk, how did Rav Gorelik exemplify listening to the dictum of great Gedolim and Sadiqim? I was so in my younger years to be a Rav in the Roosevelt Synagogue in the Bronx. Bronx is one of the boroughs of New York City, and it housed one of Rav Gorelik's institutions, one of his yeshivas, called Zichon Moshe. Rav Gorelik himself, Davin, in my shul for a fair number of years. Rav Gorelik was a the volatile personality. His Kinas Hashem Tzvokos was legendary. He was a Radner on the one hand, grew up and born in Radin under the ambience of the Chafetz Chaim Zechazag Dibracha and later learned in Brisk with the Brisk of Zechazag Dibracha. And he shared me with me a particular vignette that became literally classical and part of his very vibrant personality. When he was a young boy in Raden, growing up in the shadow of the Chavetz Chaim, Zetzal, he was once drafted by the Chavetz Chaim to resolve and address a burning issue. There was a Maskil who was a renowned Darshan and public speaker, came to Raden, and was scheduled to speak in the main shul in Raden. This Maskil was a charismatic and fiery personality with skills of elocution that were renowned. The Chavetz Chaim did not know, how could I stop this individual from speaking in the main shul and perhaps sharing ideas that were not necessarily in sync with the classical hashkafa of G'dolei Torah. So he was frustrated, and in exasperation, he called Harav Gerelach, who was a young boy, before his bar mitzvah, I'm not sure exactly how old he was at that point in time. I would imagine around 10 or so, from what I gather. And he enlisted him, he drafted him, to prevent this maskil in a proper way from making his appearance in the main shul in Raden. Rav Gerald told me he had a group of his chevra, his contemporaries, whom he described to me as, in Yiddish, he used the terminology, but I would, uh, in English, translate it as Street urchins, something along those lines, his yeshiva pals, to come, his chevra, and devise a strategy, a scheme, to carry out the mission of the holy Chavetz Chaim Zatzal. They came up with the following strategy. The Moscow entered the main shul. Apparently the main shul there had a number of entrances and passageways leading to the bima and the podium near the Aram Kodesh. Rav Gerelik stationed several of his compatriots at each entrance, at each passageway into the shul. When the mosque began to speak, after a few moments, the shul was packed, literally, pal packed, completely, because he was a powerful speaker. Suddenly there was a commotion and pandemonium as each of these chevra, each of these chaver, each of these younger man, we'll call them, suddenly at the signal of Rav Gerelik, round down the varying passageways leading to the bima, screaming at the top of their lungs in Yiddish to the speaker, Zain Hoizen, Zain Surisen. Your pants are torn. And there's a gaping hole in the seat bottom of your pants. They were guffering. They were laughing hysterically. The masculine was shaken. 
and completely confounded, began to sort of hold the back of his pants together with his hands to cover up his embarrassment. They continued with the bellowing and laughs to the point where the speaker became so nonplussed, he decided to slink out of the shul and basically run for his life to prevent further shame. Rabbi told me he was extremely proud of this quote-unquote sacred mission that he carried out on behalf of the Tzadik Ador, who didn't want that the pure and pious Balabatim of Radin to be influenced by the Ashkafas and perspectives that were not completely in sync with pure Hashkafas HaTorah. This position, which was daring and bold, he told me was found on the Gemara. The Gemara says, Every type of scoffing, any kind of leitzonus is not permissible unless it relates to idolatry. And Avgelic said that idolatry is not only to be understood in the literal sense, but in terms of hashkafis that are distorted, that are distended, and must be expunged and exorcised. And again, we have to understand Avgelic personified Midas Emes. That's really what he was. Honesty. His kanos was not a product of stam kanos, but a deep-seated need to correct and present genuine and authentic Torah Ashkafa. That's where he came from. That's what he explained to me many, many times. And that Ashkafa he absorbed from his Rebbe, the great Gom, the Briskov, Rabel Vosalavechik, Zechatzarek He constantly quoted and cited the Torah, all types of Vodlach and Divrei Torah and Chidushim and Apathems from his Rebbe. And he told me umpteen times he had so many enemies, people that he castigated, he could fill Madison Square Garden with his detractors and there won't be enough room to accommodate all of them. He was a ball of fire. He was Eishlahaba. And he knew how to give most of the people. But at the same time, Rab Guelic was someone who had a tremendous love for Claudius Yisrael. It was amazing to see this blend, this hybrid of MS, H, Kanos, at the same time, clearly undergirded by an unbelievable Ava that he had for all of Kavisa. And how was Adon Yeruchim Gorelik's personality expressed in, in what we have titled here The Beauty of Shmira Shabbos? I vividly recall one Yom Tov, when a coin who was not a Shem Shabbos, David and the Shul, one of the thousand reasons I made Aliyah was Bichas Kornim, on a daily basis. I say this many, many times. Baruch Hashem, there are many other reasons to live in Eretz Yisrael, but certainly Bichas Kornim is a key, key critical factor, and I try my best in all the years not to miss Bichas Kornim under any circumstances. So there was a kind who came on Yom Tov. He was not a Shem Shabbos. And the question arose, should he be allowed to do it, to perform the mitzvah, the siyas kapayim for Musaf or not? I remember hearing from my Rebbe, Moron Haras Salavetz Zatzal, that his father, Moron Hagoyin Haras Salavetz Zatzal, did not agree with the Psaq of the Mishnaburah. Mishnaburah has a Psaq in Arachayim somewhere in Kufchav Dalit, where he contends that a mummer the Chal Shabbos is akin to someone who worships idolatry. Rechal Shabbos is ka'obed avadazara, and cannot dochit. Ramaz Salavechik drew a sharp but nuanced, nuanced distinction between an idolater and Rechal Shabbos v'hesya. He felt the two are not to be analogized, are not to be compared in this situation. So I had a quandary, and Rav Gurel Davin in my shul, I approached him, I asked him, what should I do? I was a very young rub, many decades ago. And here was an eminent Rosh Hashiva, albeit the Briska, but with years of experience and the like. To my amazement, he told me, we're going to call this Cain and speak to him privately and have a discussion with him. Rav Gurel then proceeded to call this Cain on his own, and all three of us go into a private room, and the following discussion ensues. Very personable, very heart-wrenching, essentially about the beauty of being a Shomer Shabbos, the beauty of observing Shabbos, the beauty of Yom Tev, especially for a Kohen who's about to serve as a pipeline and a conduit for a bracha given by Hashem Isbarach. 
The kain is simply the sluice, the tzaneret, and the rebellion is the one, the balabracha. The kain that we are talking about was so taken, so impacted by the dialogue, he agreed that on that day, he's going to be a completely shomer yomtev, and he even agreed to be a shomer shabbos. I was absolutely stupefied. I couldn't believe what I heard. I saw this fiery briska speaking to this kain in such a gentle, tender, delicate, compassionate kind of way. I was absolutely taken aback, but of course equally delighted with the affirmative response of this kain. He's going to be a Shema Yantar Shema Shabbos. So this briska, MS, Eish, Lahova, had the capacity to be both a stern, inflexibly, intransigent kind of individual, but when necessary, it can be a prince charming with all the eloquence that one could possibly muster. To me, it was absolutely amazing. And this Kayin became a Shem Shabbos a Shem Yamtiv. He told me because of that one experience with Abguelik, who was Masbitin almost a half hour. As a matter of fact, there was a delay in the davening because of this. This happened before Musaf, and they waited for the Rav, myself, and for Agurin Rav Guelik to come back. And this fellow told me that Birchas Karim today was the one that he gave to Claudia with such Ava that he never in his life experienced such Ava. That's the bracha of the Birchas Karim, Ashekidashanabikdashasalaram. So here we see a briska, fiery briska. Behind the raging fire of Guelic was the depth of Vamkite and prodigious chesed carried out with incredible modesty, without fanfare, without ostentation. He himself built several yeshivas. He built several institutions. And for both men and women, they came bastions of Judaism. He produced hundreds of thousands of B'nai B'nai Yisterah, really that there impact will be felt in Netzach Netzach. As mentioned earlier, of Moshe Feinstein was recognized as the preeminent Posek legal authority of the previous generation. Rav David had the opportunity to experience the pristine and princely character of Rav Moshe Feinstein. There is a vignette, not so well known, but those who are aware of it are aware of it. And I heard this from my Rebbe, the Talmud Muvak of Hagarin uh, Moshe Feinstein Zatzal, namely the one that we spoke about earlier, Hagarin Nisim Alpha Zatzal. A great Golubat Torah decided to publish a Sefer where he essentially disagreed with several hundred of the shells and chuvas of Hagarin Moshe Feinstein and Igris Moshe. His Responses to Rav Moshe were quite comprehensive, quite sharp, and uh, this fellow was known to be a giant, the Torah giant himself, and he wanted to publish that sefer. He decided to go to the same publisher, whose name was Balshin. Balshin Publishing was the one who put out the Psalm of the Igris Moshe, and he went to him and said, I would like you to publish this sefer, and the name of the sefer was similar to that of the Igris Moshe, slightly different. It was a response to the Jews of Moshe Feinstein, and he said to him, I want you to publish it using the same font and essentially the same, more or less, binding and the same color, almost identical to the Igris Moshe, except the name was slightly different. Okay, the fellow opens up the galleys of the Sefer, and he sees in the galleys of the Sefer that this fellow takes issue with Moshe Feinstein in Dalu Chag literally. But he then, after beginning to read, his face turns white and he's in a state of complete shock, almost a catatonic shock that hit him. The language that this author used when he argues with Moshe was very inappropriate. He literally derides Moshe and uses language which is completely unconscionable to describe another Golubat Torah. When you disagree with someone, you, of course you could disagree. Uh, Moshe writes in the Agdama Tishubis, anyone who's examined the sources of the Sugis carefully can disagree with me. I don't claim to be the last word on anything. 
this fellow disagreed with him in a very logical kind of way and based on sources. However, he describes Moshe in terminology that's absolutely almost inexplicable. The fellow Balshin then tells him, I can't publish a Sefer. I can't publish a Sefer that unfortunately speaks in a fashion of Agdoli so that's absolutely irreverent, inappropriate, unfounded, unconscionable. I can't do it. The fellow said, no, I want you to publish it. And he begins to press him and he begins to insist that he publish the Sefer. So at the end, Balshin says, okay, let's ask a Shaila of one of the Doli Ador. So Balshin's Rebbe happens to be the guy, the Igris Moshe, Amesha Feinstein. He lives in the Lower East Side. Amesha lives in the Lower East Side. They both go to the Gorn Amesha Feinstein. Or actually, he went, I think, by himself to the Gorn Amesha Feinstein. Amesha then looks at the galleries, doesn't, no expression. He's expressionless. He examines the number of the Chuvis. Undoubtedly, he saw the language that was inappropriate. And he says to Balshin, why does he want to publish this Sefer? He said, Rebbe, he needs Parnosa. And perhaps the Sefer will bring him Parnosa. So Amosha says, Parnosa, publish the Sefer. Immediately publish it. So Balshin says to Amosha, but Rebbe, how can I publish this Sefer where there's a lack of Kavanah Torah? He's using language that's completely without any foundation, inappropriate completely. Amosha said, Parnosa, he needs your Parnosa, publish the Sefer. So he published the Sefer. Sefer comes out on the shelves of all the farm stores in New York City. The day the Sefer was published, I'm on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And I used to frequent that area to buy Svarim. And guess what? I see another Sefer. It looks to me like another volume of the Igus Meshe. Oh, I said, wow, another Chelek. I'm purchasing a Miat. I take it from the bookshelves. And I'm about, I didn't really look at it carefully. Didn't notice that the name was different. Just to look exactly like a Moshe Sefer. And I'm about to pay for it. In walks my Rebbe, Hagarin, Anisim Albazatzal. He sees me with the Sefer, and he says, Avishai David, put that Sefer back on the shelf right now. You can't buy that Sefer. I said, Rebbe, why not? You can't buy it. It's inappropriate. You cannot buy the Sefer. Okay? I grew up in a family that we are very respectful of Dovi Ador, of Tamri Chachamim, of all human beings. My Rebbe said, I can't buy the Sefer. So I didn't buy the Sefer. The next day, the Sefer was put in Cherem. The author was ostracized. The Sefer disappeared from all the shelves of all the bookstores everywhere. And the Machabra of the Sefer, who was the giant, the Torah giant himself, a survivor of the Holocaust, unfortunately and tragically, lost his Parnassah entirely. It was Rosh Hashiva of renown, and he was in that situation. A few months later, he was offered another position. But they told him, if you want the position, you have to bring it in premature from the Galadar. So he goes to Hagarin Amosha Feinstein, this author, and he asks Amosha for a imprimatur, for a recommendation, for an approbation. But Amosha writes him a three-page hamlotza, three pages of how towering this Godel is, what his stature is. So the Talmudim of Amosha Feinstein were astounded. This was told to me by Nisa Malpert, the Talmud Muvak. They couldn't believe it. This fellow heaped all kinds of vitriol and calumny on Rav Moshe. And Rav Moshe writes him a three-page tshuva, a three-page recommendation, probably the longest he wrote for anyone. So Moshe Feinstein explained to them what happened. Yes, I agreed to the same it could be published. The fellow needed it for Panosa. I was not happy about the language that he used about me at all. I found it to be very unbecoming and very uncharacteristic of Golden Batora. But I said, Panasa, I have to publish the Sefer. That night, when I went home, and before I was about to go to sleep, I said, I am Moichal to anyone who's Mitzayer me, anyone who caused Mitzayer and anguish, and even anyone who may have heaped all types of uh, scorn and scoffing. And I was Michael him entirely. But a few months later now, and now the Sefer and the author comes to me for a Hamlotza, I said to myself, maybe there might be some Tina Belibi Negdo. Maybe I have some residual kind of issue with this author because he wrote about me in a fashion that was absolutely inappropriate. So I said, I'm going to write him a Hamlotza to show the world I have zero against him. He's a God of Atera. I'm Michael him entirely. 
and the rest is history. So Avisam Albert says to me, Avishai David, who is my Rebbe? So I said, what do you mean, who's his Rebbe? The Galadar. No, you don't understand, he told me. Of course he's the Galadar. Of course he knows Kalatarakula. Of course he could have been a Godol, like Rav Soloveitchik said about him. 200 years ago, in this Rebbe Kivega, he would be one of the Galadar. That's not who my Rebbe is. You want to know who my Rebbe is? This story is a reflection of who my Rebbe is. My Rebbe is someone whose character is impeccable, who's a Malach Hashem Tzvokos, an angel. Only an angel could behave in this kind of a fashion. That's who the God Lador is. That's why. He told me, this is who my Rebbe really is, and this is what we have to aspire to. Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, acknowledged for his brilliant scholarship, deep understanding of the human psyche. Rabbi David recalls the wisdom and keen insight of this Gadol B'Tor. Rabbi Yaakov I never was Zohar, unfortunately, to learn the Yeshiva Torah Vadas, and therefore didn't have the opportunity to study under this giant. I didn't have a close connection with him. I did attend Torah Masorah conventions where he often spoke his focus was always on Tanakh. He knew everything, all Tanakh, literally by heart. And somehow he was able to derive all types of incredible, both scholarly and Musr nuggets that he drew from Tanakh were astounding. And he intrigued me tremendously. He had a prodigious knowledge of Toshim al And uh, perhaps you can describe in the way the Gemara describes in Kedushin, why do we show him called Sofrim? Shall you Sofrim called Osio Shema Torah? Literally, can count every letter in the Torah. He knew the entire Talmud and the entire Tanakh backwards and forwards. And a lot of his novelae on Chidushim uh, and Chas and Tanakh have been published and, in pas- and encompass everything. The, my wife and I were Zohar to meet Yaakov Kamenetsky in his home in Muncie, New York in 1983. He was an octogenarian, he was in his uh, 90s. But his smile was infectious, his wit was charming, his sagacity was distinctive. My Rebbe Amnisa Malpet had arranged a meeting in order to discuss uh, complex challenges in my life at that point in time, and in terms of my future, where I was going. And uh, I thought he would send me to his Rebbe, the Igus Meisha. Hagarin de Meshafain is not solved, that I described earlier. But he said, no, you'll go to Hagarin de Biankev. He called him Hakim de Udoi the wisest man in the Jewish world. He's the one who will give you advice. And uh, in the course of the conversation, he told me that there was a position available in a certain area, a certain part of the world. And uh, he himself felt that I was not in for that position. He then proceeded to have his grandchildren make a number of phone calls. And as a result, I became a Rosh Hashiva, that Yeshiva, several months later. Uncanny that uh, this is what happened in the course of that meeting. However, I want to share with you, in the dialogue I had with Yaka Kamenetsky, I posed him a number of questions. One of the questions I asked him, and it's amazing what he told me, in my years in the world of Chinuch, I taught all kinds of students. I taught students who were Russian in origin. Uh, in, uh, they were, in general, uh, let's try to be as polite as I can. They were aggressive and... Uh, even difficult to discipline, a bit feisty, if you will. I also thought Iranians in Providence, Rhode Island, many decades ago, they had escaped after the Shah fell in Iran. So they escaped to all kinds of mountains and really unbelievable, uh, treacherous methodologies that they somehow were able to emerge from Iran without their parents. They came on their own and they came to the United States. And they were refined. They were very, I would say, even genteel, well-bred, elegant, even debonair in nature. That's what I saw with these uh, Iranians. So then I asked Abyakov, how does he explain the distinction between the Russian students that I had that had a certain kind of temperament in contrast to the Iranians that clearly were rather markedly different? So he asked me, did you study Jewish history? So I really didn't know what to answer, so I was just quiet. And he told me, it's critically important for a Torah Jew to have a basic knowledge of Jewish history and see the Yad Hashem, see the navigating of Hashem in the labyrinth of our history. Beside the fact that the Torah imposes upon us such an obligation 
He quoted to me the Pasuk, he mentioned from Abuchan Vasiman and others, Zechor Yimos Olam, Bino Shnos Dor Vador. person who wants to see the Anashem, let him study Jewish history, world history. And then he outlined for me the following. He said from the Russian Revolution in 1917, and then the rise and burgeoning of a socialist communist regime, he said they were steadfast in literally eviscerating Judaism, any remnant of it in any shape, matter, and form. Their tactics were ruthless. Of course, he spoke about all the well-known individuals, Stalin and the like, and uh, human life was meaningless for these people. They ran roughshed of every shred of Yiddishkeit, and they largely succeeded, unfortunately, in their tyrannical kind of path. Torah, Svarim, Kashrus, Mikvos, all were trod upon and destroyed. As a result, even observant Jews, in order to survive, literally had to sever all their ties, at least frontally, with the Orthodox Jewish past. And then he slided to me, he cited to me a slew of Rishonim regarding what Chazal speak about, someone who doesn't have kashrus and is compelled to eat trade for food. Chazal speak of Timtum Halev, what one might call a kind of spiritual atherosclerosis, spiritual hardening of the arteries. And uh, that's what trade is all about. And he said, that's what happened to these Russian students. And their personalities were totally transformed because of their trade for lifestyle. That's why they're aggressive. They're feisty. That's why they're difficult. In stark contrast, he tells me, Rabbi Yaakov, are the Iranian Jews who even after the fall of the Shah maintain basic fidelity to Kashrus, Taras HaMishpacha, Shabbos, the fundamentals of Yiddishkeit, and consequently, they were able to maintain their regal, elegant, and refined character. When I heard this, I was literally dumbfounded by this explanation. As soon as I returned home, my Rebbe, Nisam Alpin, who arranged this meeting, he said to me, he sat me down, tell me every jot and detail, called Prat Uprat, that you heard from this Hakim of the Yudoy, that I kept calling him, the wisest man in the Jewish people. And I related to him, a series of items, and included this as well. And he told me, on this item alone, come with me to Rosh Hashiva, and we have to discuss it with Rosh Hashiva. Rosh Hashiva meaning, I go in the Feinstein, that's all. I did. I accompanied him. Moshe Feinstein's response was, Svasayim Yishak. The lips of the wisest person of the Jewish people should be kissed. He was astounded by this distinction that Yaakov drew between the Iranians and the Russians. And Rabbi Kamenetsky was really probably the Bikeh Hador. I remember that uh, I heard from him in that same context, one of the other items I heard from him, he felt Jews should have a low profile in Golos. When we are outside Eretz Yisrael, we shouldn't uh, be ostentatious. <coughs> he gave me an example. He said he was opposed, even though he lived in Muncie. Muncie, which of course is Baruch Hashem, uh, no question, suffused with many, many from Jews. He felt it was not appropriate to wear a talus to shul on Shabbos morning. We're living in a country of Goyim, even though we're in Muncie, Keilu, a kind of Ir HaKodesh. And he also, in the course of that meeting, expresses unbelievable gratitude to the United States government. Unbelievable Hakarasato for their granting multitudes of Jews refugee status after the war and the obligation that we have to express our thanks vocally and in a fulsome kind of way. He was such a wise person, Rabbi Yaakov, his influence on American and world Jewry at a time when Orthodox Jewry was just beginning to show signs of incohate growth after the war. And that was critical. His sense of balance, his sense of Yashrus, his Sechal Yoshar, his MS unquestionably catapulted him to the heights of leadership and undoubtedly his contribution to the Torah trajectory that just went Leilo Leila is probably incalculable and unparalleled. Unfortunately, uh, time is up, and we could continue and continue. This has been fascinating, just a, a glimpse of the great Torah giants that David had the privilege to uh, to interact with. Uh, we hope that um, we'll be able to do a part two of this with the Gedolim of Eretz Again, Rabbi David, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it very, very much. Yashikar to you for this uh, wonderful opportunity and continue to go in this area and uh, to propagate 
uh, Yiddishkeit and Torah Yiddishkeit and Torah values to all of Kali Yisrael, Mitz Hashem, and Shibuzah to do so with good health, Bibriya Sonora Malia for many, many years. Amen. Thank you so much.